Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 41. This is what the word of God says. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And now let Pharaoh look out for a discerning and wise man, and put him in charge of the land of Egypt." Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Almost there. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. And you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Oh, thank you, Judah Bear. Come on. Isn't that the sweetest? That's Judah Bear, everybody. My five-year-old. Father, we ask that you would be with us during this gathering. Would you speak mightily through your word? In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is the final movement of Genesis, and if you've been following along, you know that we're picking up right where we left off. Our character Joseph is an innocent man in a terrible situation. Years prior, he had been accused of rape, and he was thrown into prison even though he was uh, innocent. He was actually the, the victim of the crime he said to have committed. And while Joseph's there in prison, Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and several others while he was in prison. And Joseph told the cupbearer, yeah, your dream means that you're getting out of here. You're going to be set free. You're going to be restored to your job. And so remember me, is his word to the cupbearer, remember me uh, when you're with Pharaoh because maybe you can help me go free. That was the idea. And everything happens just like Joseph said it would happen except the cupbearer, we're told, forgets Joseph. And that's the end of chapter 40, and that's where we left off last week. So for another two years, Joseph is just sitting, waiting on God in the dungeon. But today, 
things are about to change. All at once, things are about to change for the better. Joseph wakes up one morning in prison, but by that evening, he's the second most powerful man in the world. He's getting out. He's getting promoted. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh gives him a ring and a gold chain and a palace and a chariot. So like jewelry, cars, and big houses. Uh, Status symbols haven't changed that much in 4,500 years. Um, So anyways, if you didn't know the backstory, you'd be tempted to think that Joseph was just an overnight success. He just woke up one day and he was suddenly successful. He was promoted. But in reality... His promotion comes after 13 years of God preparing him to become a great leader. And this is the theme that we've been exploring about how God likes to work. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless his people. But often, he needs to transform you first so that you're ready for his blessing. And this is the story about how Joseph is now capable of handling great spiritual responsibility. So here's how it all happens. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has two dreams. And in his first dream, he sees seven healthy cows on the banks of the Nile River. And suddenly, seven skinny cows swallow up the fat cows. It's kind of strange. I'll give you that. But in the second dream, he sees seven healthy heads of grain, and they're swallowed up by seven unhealthy heads of grain. Kind of like your dreams, this is a little bit off and strange, right? Uh, But there's a meaning to it. And Pharaoh is freaked out. So he he calls for the magicians and the wise men and the other rulers in his land to see what they think the dreams might mean. And no one has any idea. And so that's when the cupbearer, who's just there to bring everybody their drink, suddenly he finally remembers Joseph and what he had done for him in prison. And he, said, he tells Pharaoh about it. He says, you know what? There was this Hebrew guy in prison for, with me years ago. And when I had a dream, he was able to interpret it. And he was completely right. Everything that he said came true. And so Pharaoh is out of options. And what he decides to do is he decides to go and get this random guy he's never met, a criminal in prison, and have him interpret his dream. So Joseph, at the time, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's just pulled out of his cell, and he looks like a guy who's been in a dungeon for the last several years. And so they give him a shower and a shave and a fresh set of clothes and all of that. And then he appears before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to him, first words out of his mouth, I hear that you are able to interpret dreams. So this is Joseph's shot. Think about it. This is Joseph's chance. This is his opportunity. This is like he's in the shark tank with Mark Cuban or something like that. The most powerful man in the world is looking straight at him, and it's his turn, his opportunity to show him what he's made of. And Joseph has always been a gifted guy. That's been true of him his entire life. But he's been an outcast. He's been an immigrant. He's been a slave. And this is the chance to change all of that. And Joseph knows it. But look at what Joseph says back to Pharaoh in verse 16. He says, I I cannot. I cannot interpret your dream. But God will give you the answer you're looking for. This is what you got to love about Joseph's attitude here. He could have used this moment to project confidence in himself. He could have said, you got me, Pharaoh. I'm the man for the job. I've got the answers. And yet that's not really what what he does. 
Instead, he's very humble. And, and, and instead of accepting praise, he directs glory to God. So by this time in his life, here's what's going on. By this time in his life, Joseph knows where all of his gifts come from. And to say that he was the guy would be at best embellishing the truth. But at worst, it would be diminishing God's credit for the great things that God was accomplishing through his life. And God doesn't want to share his glory like that. That's not how it works. Joseph knew that was not a bad idea. I remember actually years ago, a wise leader once told me, Andrew, stay away from the girls, the gold, and God's glory. Which I will give you that that statement did not age that awesome. Uh, But the wisdom is so true. What he was counseling me or advising me, live with sexual integrity, keep yourself free from the love of money, biblical ideas, and if something great comes from your life, make sure it's God who gets the credit and not you. And this is what Joseph was able to master by this point in his life. Yeah, it's good, amen. Notice though, Joseph doesn't sell himself short either. Joseph has what I call holy confidence and what God wants to do through his life. And he makes sure that Pharaoh knows God is going to interpret his dream. See, pride is dangerous. We know that. But false humility is also bad. It keeps us sidelined and, and keeps us from uh, maximizing the glory that God wants to get from our life. See, the faith of Joseph is bold. It's, it's courageous. He's saying God is going to give you the answer that you're looking for. He was confident of that. And I think we need that kind of faith too. Again, I call it holy confidence. Not that we're sure of ourselves, but we are sure of God, that he is good and that he has given us the power of his Holy Spirit as a gift. And that's actually meant to build one another up. That is the activity of God in the world. And we need to have confidence in that. I remember uh, one of my favorite scriptures. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul says that I've actually come to boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then he is strong in me. And his power is perfected in weakness. And so we can move through life with a sense of, yeah, It's actually not about me. There's actually nothing all that special about me. But God is capable of doing great things through me. And I'm going to trust that. And I'm going to believe that. I remember years ago, Grace and I were were praying about what the next season of our life would be. And we began prayer walking around Bend because I was leading a college group and sisters. And it just became clear that there was a need for a church teaching the scriptures and an emerging generation on the west side of Bend. And so we just began prayer walking together. And we, over the course of several months, began to grow in a sense that God was calling us to plant a church that, again, lived out the gospel for an emerging generation on Bend's west side. But we had no money, no building, no team, no backing. All we knew is that God wanted us to do it. He was calling us. He was asking us to do it. And so I called a friend who at the time was a pastor in Portland at Westside Jesus Church, this incredible place uh, where God moved with great power, where thousands of people trusted in Jesus and began following after Jesus. And many of you know this story of the church formerly known as Solid Rock that was launched by my mentors, Phil and Diane Comer, who are now a part of our community here in Bend, which is a huge gift to me and our family 
family, but also to all of you, that we have these church planters, apostolic, spiritual mother, father type leaders, a part of our community. And they, they planted Solid Rock back in the day, along with their son, John Mark. Many of you know him as well. And so anyways, I, I asked them if they would be interested in planting a, a church here in Bend. Not sure what the answer would be. And their response was this. They said, well, why don't you just come out to an elders meeting here in Portland and let us hear your vision. And I've been around church long enough to know what that meant, what they were sort of looking for. And I had also uh, thought a lot and prayed a lot about what kind of church we wanted to plant. And so I was preparing essentially what is a pitch, articulating the vision of what would become Riverbend. And a lot of things that I ended up saying in that meeting, you would recognize because our vision hasn't changed all that much since back then. It's just we've gone much deeper into it. But I remember sitting outside the conference room that evening and just sort of feeling this deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, knowing that this was a very important life moment for Grace and I. I could just sense that there was, this was a big transition in our life. And I remember looking over my agenda, what I had planned to say, and I was convicted. The, I was presenting a lot of my plans and my goals, and they were, I think, on point. And I think they were biblical, and I think they were clear, but... They, so I guess what I'm saying is there were not, nothing was wrong with what I had planned to say. It was just really incomplete. And so it was when, when it was my turn, I was a little bit nervous. I'm like, oh, shoot. I just, my, the whole agenda, my whole pitch is now like, is it out the window? I don't know what to do. So anyways, the first thing that I, I said without looking at my notes or anything, it wasn't anything I pre- prepared to say, but I remember looking at the team of elders there and saying, I'm really happy to be here today, and the most important thing that you need to know about me is that I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And I said that because I think it's true. I actually take John 15 seriously. John 15 says uh, that if we abide or remain in him, we will bear much fruit, but apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And I believe that. Meaning that if I accomplish anything great for the kingdom of God in my life, it won't be because I'm smart or skilled or determined or a charismatic leader or anything like that. If anything great comes from my life, it will be because God's power is working through me. And that needs to be clear in our minds and it needs to be clear in our lives as well. I also had this sense that if anything was going to come of that meeting that it wouldn't be because I had like projected confidence in myself or won people over by a leadership gift. If anything came of that meeting, it would be because it was a part of God's sovereign plan. And that's why Joseph was in front of Pharaoh. God planned for that to happen. And God has planned for and architected the major events of your life as well. And so I spent the rest of that meeting sort of laying out what we believe God is asking us to do, a vision for a community following after Jesus with a hunger for God's presence and a commitment to the scriptures and an emphasis on leading people to faith and not transfer growth from other churches and things like that. And by the end of that meeting, the elders were pretty much in agreement. We had to do some vetting and everything else, but the elders were pretty much in agreement that God wanted them, the, the, the family of churches, to plant us. And that was not me. That wasn't because I had a compelling pitch. That was what God wanted, and that's what the Lord was doing. See, our culture preaches a message of manifesting your own destiny. But that's just not how it works in the kingdom of God. You cannot manifest God's will for your life 
But you can, like I said, have holy confidence that God wants to accomplish great things through your life, and he does, and he will, when you remain in him, when you abide in him. And that's exactly what Joseph is modeling for us here, is an example of abiding with the Lord. He's got the spirit of God in him, we're told. So he's able to perfectly, flawlessly interpret Pharaoh's dreams. So here's the basic interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. It's an example of prophetic knowledge. Okay, so both dreams are telling the same, same essential thing. There's going to be seven years of abundance. Then there's going to be seven years of famine. The famine will be so bad that it'll make everyone forget the good years. And remember, this is a big deal in the ancient world because their entire economy and their food supply was dependent on the weather, even more so than it is today. So again, this is the basic interpretation. This is what Joseph is able to tell Pharaoh, and it's an example of prophetic knowledge. We talked a little bit about this last week. This is what God is saying will happen in the near-term future. By the way, where was Joseph right before COVID? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I remember being in a meeting, Zoom meeting, during the first week of the, the, the pandemic, and there was a pastor from South Africa, Chris Venan, who was like, where were the prophets on this one, guys? Come on. Where did we fall asleep? Uh, no one really had a good answer for that. But anyways... Uh, Joseph doesn't just stop with prophetic knowledge, though. He's also filled with prophetic wisdom. He says, hey, listen, this is a big problem, but it's workable. You can actually still save the people. You can still save the land. You can even position Egypt to supply grain to your trade partners during the famine. What you need to do is just find the right leader who's wise and discerning, and that leader can oversee officials across Egypt who will store up grain during the years of abundance. And he recommends a 20% tax, which may or may not sound like good news to you, depending on your tax bracket. I'm not sure. And then he says certain cities throughout Egypt will hold the reserves and become supply cities where everyone will come to quote or so that the country will not be ruined by the famine. I want you to hold on to that for later. That's exposing the, the, the motivation of Joseph's heart so that the country will not be ruined by the famine. So we live in a world that's um, information rich and wisdom poor. This week I was talking with a friend who's a retired executive from Intel. And he was like an important player in the tech boom of the 1990s and 2000s, a part of the team there at Intel. And he shared with me his concern about how all of this information that's available to us on the internet isn't actually doing us any good if we don't know what to do with it, right? If we don't know what to do with the data, what's it all for? And I would, I would actually take it a little step further and say that you can actually make the argument that the information age has negatively impacted the average person's ability to think critically and problem solve. If you need convincing on that, read Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a book from the 1980s, well worth your time. So we need wisdom, not just information. And Joseph has both knowledge and wisdom. Prophetic knowledge, uh, I'm just characterizing like this. Here's what is about to happen. But prophetic wisdom is here's what God wants us to do about it. I think this is a core 
uh, essence, if you will, of what spiritual leadership is all about. Applying wisdom to life, offering help to others. So many of us, we, we're going through a lot in our life right now. There's a lot happening, and we need wisdom to be able to navigate life's events um, in a way that's responsible. I love what the Proverbs teach us. If you don't live in the Proverbs, I recommend you read one every single day. It says this in Proverbs 16, verse 16, it's better to get wisdom than gold. It's more valuable to get insight rather than silver. I love that. The reality is that wisdom is more valuable than commodity, than other commodities. So the quest of your life is to get wisdom from God. And um, that we don't have a, uh, a lot of time for a lengthy uh, teaching on this, but wisdom uh, comes from hearing God's word and doing what it says. That's what, that's what Jesus tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, the wise person is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. So it's not just knowledge. Again, it's the same point. It's not just knowledge. It's actually putting knowledge into practice or putting the truth, rather, into practice. And then also, according to James 1, wisdom also comes from asking God. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally without finding fault. This is what Joseph does. Joseph asks God for wisdom when it comes to interpreting uh, Pharaoh's dream. And this is what we ought to be doing as well. Hearing the words of God, immersing ourselves in the truth of God, and practicing it, doing what it says, and also asking God for his wisdom. Now notice uh, what, what the results of all of this is in, in verse 37. Verse 37, it says this, they, The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this guy? One in whom the Spirit of God is? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You will be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So here it is. All in one day, in an instant, Joseph's days of waiting on God in the pit are over. He gets promoted. Now he's the second most powerful man in the world behind Pharaoh. Now, important thing to notice here is that this story is establishing a biblical pattern that we are going to see throughout redemption history. I'm characterizing the pattern in this way. God sends his people to respond to the world's nightmares. When there's a nightmare, like what, like what Pharaoh had, God sends his man uh, uh, Joseph in, in, into that story and into that mix. So before this, Pharaoh is just freaking out. He doesn't know what the dream means. He doesn't know what to do. All he knows is that he's got a really bad feeling about it. And Joseph, through his prophetic knowledge, confirms that his dream is a living nightmare. This is going to be bad. But since God sends him also with prophetic wisdom, Joseph is able to give them courage. This is bad, but it's solvable. Here's God's plan for saving the world. See, Joseph's presence brings peace. It brings calm. It brings hope that God is going to redeem and to save them. And that's exactly what we're looking for. Uh, that's exactly the kind of presence we want to carry into the world. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. And we, as the people of Jesus, need to be the kinds of people who come and bring peace, bring calm, and also bring God's wisdom. And here's, here, here's what, again, I, like I said, I think this is a biblical pattern. I'm going to say it like this. Um, 
Redeeming nightmares is God's specialty. God is really good at this. This is what God is all about. Remember the plot line. He made a good world. He invited us to rule with him, partner with him, and causing it to flourish. But then because of human rebellion and sin, it was corrupted by evil. And that evil brings suffering, chaos, and death into the world. And ever since, God has been making things right by overcoming evil with good. That's probably the best way to characterize redemption. And he brings, for example, the flood. And he promises to bless Abraham. And he does. And now he's sending his representative straight into the decision room of a global crisis to save countless more lives from evil. In fact, later in Joseph's life, chapter 45, it's the middle of the famine. His brothers are bowing down to him, just like they said would happen many years prior. And he's reflecting on being sold into slavery with his brothers. And what he does is he reframes what had previous been, pre- previously been one of the worst times of his life. He reframes it. He says, you guys were selling me, or you thought you were selling me, but actually, God was sending me. He was sending me with my unique gifts and my calling and my leadership to rescue you and to rescue our generation from the famine. We're going to get to that next week. He says, listen, I went to hell and back to get here. But now God has put me into a position to be a blessing to others. Again, I don't believe that this is a one-off story. God, through the scriptures, is establishing an archetype for his followers. Job, for example, goes through a horrible season of suffering himself, but he emerges out the other side with a powerful resolve in his faith. We've written songs about it, and we still sing them today. I know that my Redeemer lives And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. See, the Bible doesn't deny that the world is filled with evil. But it actually promises that in the end, God will redeem. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And hopefully what you're already putting the pieces together and connecting is that the ultimate savior that Joseph's story is pointing towards is Jesus. Jesus rescues us from the nightmare of our slavery to sin and the reality of hell. God is redeeming us from that reality. One of my favorite scriptures that tells us what Jesus did for us is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, where it says this. Because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Come on. Think about that for a second. Isn't that amazing? The Lord has been so good to us. And this week there's been several people in our community who've Uh, for one reason or another, had to be rushed to the hospital and near-death experiences and severe mental health issues and things like that. And so I've been asked to go to the hospital a couple of different times this week, and I have been. You guys matter to me, and it's part of my job here as the pastor is to show up in moments like that. And when I do, I read verses like this to remind one another, remind us that our ultimate hope is what Jesus has done and what Jesus has promised will come in the coming ages. So the promise that, that, uh, that, that Joseph held on to 
was that God had given him a dream as well, and he was coming through. You know, Nelson Mandela says, a successful person, which, by the way, he has a very similar life arc, Nelson Mandela. He was imprisoned, and then he became the prime minister of the president of South Africa. He says, dreamers, uh, people who are successful are just dreamers who never stop giving up, who never give up. So if the mission of Jesus is to rescue and save, then part of our calling is to be sent by God into a hurting world with the life-saving presence of Jesus. So Jesus has saved us. He's redeemed us. And that is the ultimate miracle, that the pinnacle at the top, you know, the, the crux of all of human history is Jesus on the cross and rising again. But then we also follow in that same pattern of Joseph and ultimately of Jesus. For example, Jesus epitomizes this when he rose from the dead, appeared to his apostles, and this is what he says. Peace I give to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So there are tons of parallels between uh, Genesis 41 and uh, that passage I just read to you. God sent Joseph to rescue Egypt, and he was filled with the Spirit. The Father also sent Jesus into the world to save us, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus raised from the dead, and with all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth, what does he say to you? He says, my peace I give to you, shalom. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same construction, the same thing. It's meant to be all sort of connected together in our minds as we read the Bible. And the word uh, sent there is the Greek word that's translated into Latin, which is translated into English, and that's where we get our word mission. Mission. So to be uh, a missionary or to be on mission is to be sent by God into the world. And like I've been saying over these past couple of weeks, I don't think it's a stretch of the scripture to say that we are being sent to respond to the world's nightmares, the global crises. We are designed by God and called by God to run towards those places that others are wanting to run away from. Things like poverty, food and water insecurity. Orphan widow care, human trafficking, refugee care, the mental health crisis of America's youth. We are the ones, we're the Jesus people, we bring the Jesus stuff. We ought to be the ones with the prophetic wisdom to give the world hope. This is bad, but it's solvable. Here's God's strategy to save you. Have you ever heard of Jesus? Like that's the, the message that we carry with us. Wouldn't it be amazing if Joseph's reputation was our reputation? Who else has wisdom like this? Who else has the spirit of God like this? We will gladly follow your lead. That was the conclusion that Pharaoh and all of the other rulers, who, by the way, probably wanted to be promoted to be second in command too, they all had to sit back and say, you know what? No one's got wisdom like this Joseph guy. No one has the spirit of God like this Joseph guy does. We actually want to follow your lead. I would love, wouldn't you love that if that could be said of us and if that were the reputation of the church? Honestly, this is what was kind of disappointing, frustrating to me about how a lot of Christians handled the pandemic. Man, the pandemic was a once in a century global, global crisis. And out of everyone on the earth, we have something to offer. We have the spirit of Jesus. We have the peace of Jesus. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet it seemed like the church was often distracted, off message, and quite frankly, very combative towards the world instead of bringing the love of Jesus to the world. 
A lot of our, our, our leaders were acting like magicians and wise men of Egypt, with nothing really to contribute, just adding to the noise, and without any compelling wisdom to follow. And this is, this, this is the moment. This is our time that God is calling us up into leadership here in Central Oregon. And it's our responsibility to faithfully message the gospel of Jesus here and to not get off the message, to not be pulled off the plot line of God's ultimate redemption. Next notice, so let's carry God's wisdom into the world. Ask for the spirit of wisdom and be pressing into the Lord's truth and practicing what the scripture says. And this is how we close. We're nearing the end here. Notice that God never forgot Joseph. The cupbearer forgot him, but God never forgot him. He was waiting to elevate him until it was the right time. And I've spoken to many of you over the years who are just frustrated with God's timing. It's taking too long to find a spouse or to have a child or to get promoted or something like that. And I get it. I've had many different things like that in my life over the years. But Jesus in the Gospels is always reminding his disciples, his disciples were often coaxing him to, to re- reveal who he actually was before it was time. And Jesus would say, not now. My hour has not yet come. It occurs six different times in the book of John. Until the Last Supper, when he says, the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. So the reason God's timing doesn't always make sense to us is because he's got details that we don't know about. He's got things that we are not aware of. God was waiting for the right situations to arise and Pharaoh to have his dream and the cupbearer to remember Joseph. And he was appointed at exactly the right time for what God had planned for his life. And of course that begs the question, well, what about all of this waiting then? As I've tried to say in our study of Genesis here, that Joseph's season of obscurity, like Abraham, like Jacob, The season of obscurity is not a waste. God is developing and preparing you to be ready for his blessing. 13 years of preparation and obscurity was Joseph's training ground to be ready for what God was ultimately calling him to do. I see three things here that I'm going to briefly point out. God was developing his gifts. He was reforming the motives of his heart. And he was proving his character. See, before Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, he interprets his own dreams. And he interprets the dreams of the people in prison along with him. And that prophetic gift that God had given him was being cultivated and refined through practice over time and experience. And then before he leads the nation, he's the general manager of Potiphar's house. And he runs the prison for a while. And it's there where he learns to attend like we talked about last week, or minister to the needs of the people that he's serving. Of course, you remember Jesus' parable of the talents. If you are faithful with a little, I will make you faithful with much. And listen, you know, for me personally, this really rings true. I started as an unpaid intern. And then I got promoted to be a paid intern, which is like a little stipend, you know? 
And that's where I, I learned to serve, is setting out a lot of coffee. It was cleaning a lot of toilets. It was caring for the homeless and all of those things. And then I got to share my story of how I met Jesus with some middle schoolers. And a few of them got saved. And a few weeks later, I got to baptize them in the Pacific Ocean. And then um, it grew from there. I was given another opportunity to be the youth director at the church where I grew up at. And I was there for several years. And I took a group of students to Mexico. And then I joined a local nonprofit that does a lot of work in Latin America. And I learned about development and donor development and a bunch of things like that. And then I became a kids pastor and a youth pastor and a college pastor and an everything else pastor. And over the years, I've just gained a lot of relevant experience that has all played into the stage where I currently am. And everything that I've learned over the years has been applied to my ministry here in some pretty uh, remarkable ways. And all of these stages were preparation. And I believe that right now, the season that I'm in is also preparation for what God has next for me. I don't know what that is. I'm here. I'm going to be faithful here for as long as the Lord has me. I hope that that's 10, 15, 20 more years. I don't know. But the Lord is always preparing us. He's preparing you too. So if you're in a season of obscurity and waiting, do not lose heart. Practice. Be faithful. See, the, the motivations of Joseph's heart needed to be tested because he was about to get great spiritual power. And power corrupts. Palaces are intoxicating. Money, wealth, power, it's intoxicating. So God needed to prepare him. So sometimes our pre preparation feels very intense. His preparation was a dungeon. And that's how... I believe he was able to be humble even when there was a crown on his head. He was able to be humble and faithful. God was also reforming the motive of Joseph's heart. Remember when Joseph just had to tell his brothers about his dream at 17 years old? See, at 17 years old, Joseph wanted to become a great ruler like God had said he would. But he was focused on the wrong thing. His focus was, you guys are going to be bowing down to me. That's, that's, that was his vision of leadership, getting power, getting status, getting position. You just chalk that up to youthful arrogance, right? But if that's your paradigm of leadership, then that's, you're just not understanding the kingdom of God. It's not how it works. At 30, he has a much different perspective. He lays out the plan for Pharaoh and those people. He says, what you need to do is find a wise leader who will do this and who will do that. Remember, he's not promoting himself. He's just saying, this is what you need to find. So that, statement of purpose, the country will not be ruined by the famine. So Joseph isn't focused on himself anymore. He's not focused on his status. He's focused on the salvation and the flourishing of others. His paradigm's changed. His motives have changed. It's not about him getting status. It's about him using his status to minister and to care for others. If we had time, we would talk about Philippians 2 and Kenotic theology, how that's exactly what Jesus did. Who, although he had equality with God, something to be grasped, he laid it aside, he emptied himself so that he could serve. And this is the paradigm of leadership in, in the kingdom of God. And it's the paradigm shift that took years to take hold in Joseph's heart. He's not elevating himself Pharaoh is the one who elevates him. No one's wise and discerning like you. No one has the spirit of God like you. You're our guy. See, God promoted him when it was time. And then third, and this is the last point, God was proving his character. Palaces, jewelry, power can be intoxicating. 
And during his 13 years as a slave and a prisoner, Joseph became the kind of man who was actually able to handle the authority and the leadership without abusing the power. Abuse of power is a common thing in our time and in our culture. There's a lot of collective frustration about the abuse of power in our world today. And the reality is that that's what happens when people come to power. But Joseph had the strength of soul to not grow prideful and abuse his power when the Lord appointed him to it. And instead what you see is a very sharp administrative leader. His perspective is is very seasoned and wise. He has a realistic understanding of the work that would be required to pull off God's plan to save Egypt from the famine. See, I think a lot of people are enticed into leadership because they see the power, the notoriety, or the money, maybe, that comes along with it. But in reality, leading faithfully, particularly in God's kingdom, requires diligent administration, difficult decisions, integrity to follow through, and a commitment to serve. So while everyone might want Joseph's palace, I'm not sure many people want Joseph's job. Because his job, it requires a lot, a lot of submission to the Lord and a lot of careful, diligent leadership. The scripture says in Romans that if you've been given the gift of leadership, do it diligently. And that's a word for us today. So your spiritual gifts, your natural ability, they are important. But also, how is God developing your character? And are you submitting to the process of him developing your character? Finally, when Joseph becomes the second in command in Egypt, he gets right to work. He, he knows what to do, and he gets right to it. And this is what I want us to focus on, is when God blesses you, it's time to figure out who he wants to bless through you. Remember that when God originally uh, promised to bless Abraham, he said you're going to be blessed so that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, four generations later, the family of God is finally getting it. He's coming to power. He's getting blessed, but it's not for him. He's not about his ego. It's not about what he's getting. It's about how he can serve and save and care for the people around him. That's what Jesus has done for us, and that's what we ourselves want to do. So the way that we enter into this life, the way that we enter in is by cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit and cultivating a relationship with the Word of God and the wisdom that comes from the Word of God. So I just want to, as we close, pray blessing over you. Pray blessing over you and pray these things in over your life. So I'm going to just ask you to stay seated. And we're going to pray. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God would fill you and that you would be filled also with the Spirit of wisdom. So God, we just want to say thank you that you rushed into our nightmare, the nightmare of slavery to sin and our inability to fix our life on our own. But you came and rescued. You saved. You're the only one who's capable of that. And you did it through your sovereign power and your sovereign plan. And now here we are, your children, like Joseph, who've been given your spirit and who've been given spiritual gifts in the language of the New Testament. And our role is to not necessarily climb a ladder where we're in charge or where we have status. But we want to use the status and the influence and the things that you've given us 
in order to bless and save the world, in order to follow in the footsteps of you, King Jesus. And so, God, I just pray that you would give my friends, my, 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 uh, my brothers and sisters here today, I pray that you would give them the spirit of wisdom. You say in the word, God, that we can ask you when we lack wisdom, and so we just ask you, would you give us the spirit of wisdom? Lord, we also pray that you would give us the courage to keep immersing ourselves in the truth of your word and keep practicing your word, not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Lord, now we just ask for your Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, come. This may be a little bit out of the ordinary for you. It may make you a bit uncomfortable. It's certainly not my intention. But we want to invite you to open your hands and just be ready to receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. And there were many other times as well where the Spirit was poured out throughout the book of Acts. And so we just want to, in that same, uh, you know, tension of knowing that we have the Spirit, but that we're also going to be refilled regularly with the power of the Spirit, we just ask you, Lord, would you send your Spirit to us? Be reminded, friends, that the Spirit of God is the Ruach, the breath, energy, wind of God. In other words, He's close. He's filling you like oxygen fills your lungs. And as we were praying before the gathering, I was just struck by a word from Isaiah 40. It says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And I think that was for me today. I haven't been feeling well, but I think it's also for you, for some of you, maybe, perhaps. And so, God, we just receive your word today. We ask us, God, that we would continually be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would like to receive prayer after the gathering, we would love to pray for you. If you're trying to discern something in your life, we do also have people here who would love to help you discern, walk with you, mentor you, pray for you. And before we close in worship, I actually have a kind of an important and really exciting uh, uh, you know, sort of Riverbend family update, if you will. This is a bit of a family meeting. So if you're just joining us, I apologize, but hang with me because this is an important moment in the life of our church. As you can see around you, Riverbend is growing and the needs of Riverbend are growing. And we want to be prepared for what God is doing for us in the future. And we want to be uh, sure that we're following faithfully after him. And so the elder team uh, that's made up of myself, and Greg Allen and Jeff Hernandez have been uh, praying and discerning this year um, that it is now time for us to expand our team from three elders to a total of five elders. That's where we want to go. And in time, we will be nominating several different candidates that we would like to uh, uh, bring to you as elders for our church. Now, I want to say that we feel that 
it's very important that we follow the biblical paradigm for appointing elders and that we consider the office of an elder an extremely important role in the church. They are our overseers. They pray for us. They care for us. And God has certain standards for elders. And so we want to be very careful to follow that. So when we began this process, we just began by developing a process that we had never had before here at Riverbend for appointing elders. And the process that we came up with, I believe, is very anchored in church tradition over the last couple thousand years, but then also in the scripture as well. We also developed a couple of really important goals for our elder team over the next couple of years. For example, our number one goal is we want to foster a deep culture of, of, of family love, and we also want to train, launch, and appoint uh, and support a deacon team. And a deacon team uh, will be responsible for uh, you know, carrying out a lot of the ministry here at Riverbend, where we want to spread across the ownership of our ministry to not just me and a few staff people, but to many, many more of you. But before we even get to that, we need to bolster and train and, uh, and build our elder team. So our process lays out Seven, diff- seven different steps for appointing elders, things like prayer and invitation and discernment and evaluation and things like that. It also lays out the proven character requirements of, 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 a, of an elder from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, and then it also lays out the role of an elder, um, which I understand that for many of us, we're sort of new to faith or we're new to church. And so it's been a minute since we've actually really thought about what is a, the role of an elder. For us, we think it's these things. We think, number one, it's modeling the life of Christ to all of us, modeling the life of Christ. Also, prayer for you, but also teaching the scripture and spiritual oversight and caring for the people, and organizational leadership, and financial stewardship, and finally service. These are all uh, roles that encompass the role of an elder. We've also developed like a philosophy of ministry and theological statement. My point in bringing all of this up is that we have this elder development workbook that is available to you upon request. If you want to see our process We would love to be transparent about that and for you to know how we are identifying and appointing leaders here at Riverbend. And also in that that workbook, we we also have a short, concise uh, little statement as well on the scriptures and eldership and particularly gender. And I know that that's a really big question that's kind of on the top of mind for many of us these days is what does the Bible have to say about eldership oversight and gender. So we have a short section in our elder development workbook on that. Again, this is if you would like uh, to take a look at that, you're more than welcome. You can just email us by going to our website and we will make sure that you see that. With all of that said, we have been over the last several months meeting with and evaluating a candidate that we would like to nominate to you and bring before you guys today so that you can pray over them as the next elder here at Riverbend. And this person, you are, you all, most of you already know, you love him dearly, and you're thinking to yourself, why hasn't this guy already been an elder for like a couple of years now? And the person that we're talking about is our friend Don uh, Rodenfelds and his wife Dolores. So would you guys uh, please welcome them as they come on up here. We're going to have them share a little bit about their journey. Come on. 
So one of the criteria, oh, Don, the microphone's right over there, man. Could you go grab that? That'd be fantastic. So one of the criteria that we were looking for in elder candidates is people who are already uh, clearly have a love for the Lord Jesus and already are clearly committed to Riverbend in the ways that they serve. And you would never know this about Donna Dolores, but they're here every single Friday and they're doing all the janitorial all for free because they saw me and Brittany doing it one day and they're like, hey, get out of here, let us do it. And they've been doing it faithfully for the, next, for the last couple of years. They also have been at just about every, every time I mention a prayer meeting, Don's like sneaking in to make sure that he's there. And we've also called Don and Dolores into several people care things over the last year or so um, to mentor and to care for and serve the people of our church. So they have already clearly been living out this calling. It's almost like an acknowledgement of what they're already doing by uh, nominating them, uh, nominating Dawn particularly to be an elder here at Riverbend with Dolores as her, uh, as his easer, as his teammate in the whole process. So I asked Don to please share a little bit about your story, your faith in Jesus, and also just your excitement about being a part of the team here as an elder at Riverbend. Let me. There you are, my friend. Okay. I feel like I should sing a song or something. (laughs) (laughs) It might be easier than talking. Yeah, I... I should start by just saying my wife and I feel incredibly um, honored, privileged, and humbled to, um, yeah, to serve alongside Andrew and Grace and the other leaders of the church. And, um, but we're really excited. Um, we're, we're passionate about, about serving and, yeah, getting, I mean, there's, gosh, I know several handfuls of you, but there's a lot of people I don't know. And we look forward to, yeah, getting to know you, encourage you, and, yeah, walk alongside you. Oh, oh, hey, that's better. Um, so my story real quick as far as um, becoming a follower of Jesus, um, I'm a product, my, both my wife and I are a product of um, the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit back in the late 60s and early 70s. I graduated from college and with a degree in biology, and the last thing I wanted was to open another book. So I was um, born and raised in Ohio, so I hitchhiked out west to find a commune to live on. <laughs> and I personally was, um, I believed in God, but was, um, didn't have a personal relationship. So to me, I just thought the real, to find myself, I needed to be out in nature and out of the city. and. Um, and if you remember, well, a lot of you don't remember, but we grew up with the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and um, the race riots of the late 60s. Um, just a lot of horrendous stuff, probably no different than the world today. Um, so anyways, long story short is I was hitchhiking, visited several different communes in Oregon, and I've, after a couple months ended up in Southern Oregon, got picked up um, by some people that lived at a Christian commune in Northern California, and they lived out at a Coast Guard station um, outside of Eureka. And <clears throat> just one, one evening, somebody shared the gospel with me, and I was convicted on the spot and um, just surrendered my life to Jesus. And it was more than just saying, oh, I believe in God, but I just knew God wanted me to totally surrender, let him have, let him have complete control of my life. And at that point, my life began to change. Um, 
it was a slow change, but if I described it, it would be like I no longer was the center of my life. Mm. Um, Jesus was the center, and it wasn't just about me and what I wanted, but it was um, dying to self that, you know, I would decrease and Jesus would increase in my life. And um, gradually my heart began to change, and I think I began to care more for others than myself. Mm. And at that process is continuing in my life. So, um, gosh, where am I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I kind of think what's passionate about my wife and I is we have a small group that meets in our home, and um, we just love to, um, to love on them and serve them and see them grow. And um, a couple weeks ago, we've spent a couple weeks talking about spiritual gifts mm-hmm. and um, having everybody kind of kind of look at a survey and see what giftings God's given them. And um, it's just been wonderful to see people find their gifts and then to be able to encourage them and see them grow and see the body of Christ become what it's intended to be yeah. when people are recognize their gifts and are using them. Um, so anyways, our heart is to serve and be here for each of you in any way we can. And yeah, see you grow in your gifts and see, um, yeah, see invest in the kingdom of God. Yes, come on. So one last thing is we're retired and we kind of look at our lives right now. We're in a season that um, it couldn't be better. You know, we don't have jobs to go to every day. Um, We have resources, uh, finances, and I guess we could travel the world and visit lots of places. But to me, not that there's anything wrong in traveling, but there would be an emptiness um, when it's all about myself and, you know, so anyways, we are thrilled to have time and energy to invest um, in each of you and in the body of Christ. Amen. You guys can just hear this man's heart and Dolores as well. We believe uh, Don has been gifted with just the gift of faith. And we believe that, Dolores, you've been given the gift of wisdom and discernment, and we are so grateful. What they're essentially saying is they're making a commitment to each of you to serve you and to care for you, to pray for you, to spiritually oversee the direction of the church. And probably the hardest job is going to be managing managing me. The poor elder team's got to deal with that on a weekly basis. I'm joking. It's not that hard, is it, Greg? Is it all right? All right, he's shrugging his shoulders. No comment. Okay. No, I'm teasing. Uh, So anyways, what we would love to do now is we want to pray over Dawn as the next elder here at Riverbend. So would you guys stand to your feet? I'm also inviting Greg and Kate to come forward and my wife Grace as well to come over and to pray over them as we close. Also, worship team, would you guys come and close this out with a final song too? So Father, we just want to say thank you so much for how you have brought this family together. Each of us here, whether we're up here on the platform or we are down on, um, in, in, in the seats, we are all a part of your family and you've called us to be active members of your church. And we just want to say thank you, God, for how you have um, helped us discern that now is the time to add several elders to the team, the first of whom is Dawn. And we just pray blessing and anointing over him in the name of Jesus. We pray that, we, that you would commission him by your spirit according to your plan and your will to lead faithfully here, lead with integrity, to oversee our church and to care for the needs of the flock. We thank you also for Dolores and her many gifts and abilities as well. And we just pray that this team 
the elder team would operate with uh, unity and according to faith uh, and be faithful to your word as well, Lord Jesus. We thank you for our dear friends. We commission them and bless you for them in the name of Jesus. Father, we just thank you so much just for the servant heart that you've put into Donna and Dolores, the story that you have brought them through, um, through so many um, weird turns, but in a way you've prepared them for this moment in, in what Don said, for a time such as this. And so we just ask that you would continue to just pour your spirit on them, um, that they would, um, I, I'm just looking forward to serving shoulder to shoulder with them, and just thank you so much for their, their heart. Um, and we just um, thank you that they're such a blessing to this church, and again, it's your church, and we're here to work alongside you, and so we just look forward to all um, seeing your glory revealed in a greater way in Bend, Oregon, as it is in heaven. In your son's name, amen.